Welcome, ladies and gents, to podcast number three with um, your host, Benjamin McKay. Um, this one we recorded back in Australia just before I left. So it was about a week before I left. So this was the last one we recorded back in Oz before we came over to the US of A. Um, and it was with Mr. Tom Wagner. So Tom is, you know, this one was a very exciting podcast and, and I'm very appreciative of, of Tom to spend some time to sit down and, and have a chat and share some of his knowledge, bestow a bit of knowledge upon me. Um, so yeah, thanks in advance, Tom, for your time, really appreciated it. Um, and I learned a lot, you know, so Tom has been an avid surfer for, for over 40 years. He's been involved in the industry fairly heavily in California and um, in Australia for, for a lot of his life and just is a wealth of knowledge with from the history of surfing all the way through to board manufacture and innovation. So, you know, Tom has really been at the coalface for many years um, with developing and innovating sustainable manufacturing practices, um, environmentally friendly manufacturing practice practices um, and it has you know just really been at the the coalface of introducing new products and materials so a lot of the contemporary sort of um, board designs that we're seeing you know like the EPS with Polonia skins well you know Tom was really um, one of the guys that sort of introduced the Polonia skin to the surfing world and you know we've obviously seen that develop and blow up all over the world you know with firewire boards and and you know all of the above guys that are sort of making those boards now a lot of um of that development within the industry has has been from guys like tom that have been experimenting and developing um ideas and, and practices and really almost like the mad scientist of of the surf industry you know um i put him right up there with with um you know george greeno and and some of those other guys that we're really um, developing boards um, back in the early days. Well, I mean, Tom is is one of those guys that still, you know, to this day, we're sitting and chatting about ideas, and he's still, you know, talking about. He's just he's just really super excited, super energetic, and super progressive about um, developing the, the the whole surfing um, sort of the whole surfing scene and industry. But yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. It, it um, you know, very humbling to to talk to someone like Tom because you, you know you think that you know something, or you might know a little bit. But you know, there's just guys that just have so much um, knowledge and so much understanding, and you know, you, it, it sort of puts you on your feet a little bit when you when you realize how much um, knowledge and and understanding and and how much learning it takes to to really become a good board builder or, or a good manufacturer or, um, you know, become a true artisan um, of what you do. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Tom, for your time. Guys, thanks for tuning in to episode three of Local Heroes. If you enjoy, please share and subscribe. Um, yeah, subscribe on iTunes or on YouTube. And, yeah, I've got some rad ones coming up while we're over here in the U.S. So, yeah, thanks for your time, Tom. Thanks for tuning in, guys. And, um, yeah, hope you enjoy it.
welcome listeners. Um, this is episode number three of Local Heroes. I'm sitting here with um, with local hero Tom Wagner. Welcome to the show, Tom. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm um, sitting here in an enchanted tree in uh, Tom's backyard. <laughs> well, it's my surfboard factory. It, it, it looks like a treehouse from here because it's night and uh, the lights are looking up in the floodlights and it's all very woody, big uh, wood, wood beams everywhere. That's that's my surfboard factory, so we're just sitting in the front of the surfboard factory here. It kind of seems like a, like a Robinson Crusoe, like a Swiss family Robinson scene or something. I really love it. <laughs> it, it does. It's very rustic like that. Mm. And uh, uh, I keep thinking, oh, you know, I'd love to move to another factory. And it's just like, ah, oh, now this place has the ambience. And I think that uh, the environment where you're working, uh, it's a very wooden environment. And I started off, you know, making polyester surfboards here. But, like, the wood kind of influenced me maybe. Like, there's just so much. I'm looking at that big, like, foot and a half across beam that holds up the, you know, the upstairs. There's three stories to this A-frame shed here. It's all wood. Bloody hard wood. Dude, you can't believe how hard the wood is Like oh, that makes up the shed. You it, can't pound a nail into it. Gets it gets harder, man. Like, funnily enough, I'm um, building a cabin in my backyard and I milled a bit of the timber, some of the bigger trees that were close to my house. Mm-hmm. So they were sort of dangerous, you know, and, and dropping leaves and everything. So I'd, I'd knocked a couple and milled up the timber. Yeah. And so I did all t- hardwood frame, hardwood cladding and everything. And now I'm trying to like nail um, the, the, the finishing <laughs> yeah. touches. So I did hardwood um, trims and everything as well. And I'm trying to bang two-inch nails in. I'm pre-drilling at the the timber, and I'm still bending nails. You know, trying to yeah. bust. It's just so hard, man. It's insane. It's beautifully hard, like that. You know, yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. Hard, but worth it. I think. You know, it's 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 not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Mm. Absolutely. I don't think the termites like it as much either as pine and softer timbers. So. Oh no, not, <laughs> not even close. Yeah, no, I love it. I love this um this little setup you got. So how long you been here for for Tom? Uh let's see. We moved here in. in uh, 2001 and so started making surfboards straight away actually we I was making surfboards here before it was owned by my parents uh, my wife's parents and we bought it off of them largely for them big big beautiful shed here mm. and the house is a 1980s asbestos ridden you know kit home but the thing is it's like an esky it's so cool in the summer and um, warm in the winter so it's it's it actually, I don't mind the house. Well, that's the thing about asbestos is it's such an incredible material and it's um, so versatile and, and so functional. It's just unfortunate it kills people. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. No, we're always very concerned about that, but mm-hmm. uh, we keep paint on it. If you that. keep paint on it, man, you keep it wet, it's fine. You know. Yeah. If, if you ever want to demolish it, just wet it and wear a mask. But it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Good. Well, that won't be demolishing. But yeah, yeah. so it's it's a very comfortable place. So, we, so we've been here since nineteen or um, two thousand and one, and I um, so I was making surfboards here already. But then once we bought the property, I was able to turn the entire shed into a surfboard factory, which was really nice because I had space, and mm-hmm. having all the space allowed me to have projects going on all the time. So I could kind of screw around in one one of the rooms basically and leave it there and not have to clean up, you know, and then go to the downstairs and glass surfboards there. And, you know, I just had, had plenty of space to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's sort of um, my, my thing at the moment, Tom, is I, I started with a little 6x6 shed. And once again, I milled the timber up and built my own little shaping and glassing bay. And um, it's it's all very small. So I've been adding on to it, you know. So all of a sudden, I, before I had 36 square meters, 
now I've got a 40-foot shipping container <laughs> yeah. and I've just tacked another shaping bay off the back of it. So just slowly kind of, um, you know, increasing that sort of square meterage. So you've got that bit of space to be able to work in, in your different areas which you sort of need if you're, if you're building boards, don't you? You kind of need the space. Um, mm. I would, I've worked at other factories for brief stints and it's like, oh, I'd like to kind of do this project. And it's just like, well, you can start Friday afternoon and it better be, you know, out of here by Sunday, you know? <laughs> mm, yeah. And you can't do it. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. I love this. And you can walk outside and walk into your, into this beautiful little, and, you know, it's got a bit of history, obviously, to it. And it's got a good good vibe and good ambience, you know? Well, um, as you're, you're sitting right next to that bandsaw from the 1890s, it was well over 100 years old. And uh, Bill Wallace gave that to me. Oh, wow. And, uh, geez, it, it's solid as a rock. It takes three people to lift that thing. It's hard, heavy cast iron. Cuts a beautiful line. A little bit dangerous because all the guards have fallen off it and everything. But... And so this thing is, is still a fully functioning um, uh, bandsaw. Absolutely. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And so is it hard to get um, the right size uh, blade for it still? Or No, it's, there's people that they can, you can get those. similar size. You can get them remade. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, that, that thing's unreal, and it's Bill Wallace's old bandsaw. That's pretty. Yeah. Exci- that's pretty <laughs> yeah. exciting. Yeah. I'm sitting next to a piece of surfing history. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing. Oh, that's Be- awesome. it's, look at it's just beautiful. It has such a beautiful design. Oh, that's anyway, sweet. Yeah. So, Tom, um, I'll just sort of go into a little bit of um, your personal history because I've been sort of um, keeping an eye on your social media and your Instagram, and you put up some awesome. Sort of, um, sort of photos of what you're doing. But one of the things that I loved um, was a little while ago you showed us a bit of footage of when you were surfing. Um, probably back, it must have been in the '90s in Mexico, and it was you were surfing at a sort of nine foot board, and it was a solid um, like overhead. It looked like it was probably seven, eight foot, like some really solid punchy waves. And you were talking about fin placement and the way that people um, uh, are placing fins now and sort of your sort of theories on it. And I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of the, the industry we're living in now is all of this information that's being shared by guys like yourself. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, young guys like, like me that are sort of coming up and absorbing all that information. But you've, you've got a bit of history in the surf industry. So where did it all sort of kick off for you? Where did it start for you, Tom? Well, it started... I started surfing early on. So I was born in 1965. And by 1975, even as a 10-year-old, where I grew up was really steeped in surfing history in Southern California. I grew up in a place called Palos Verdes, which is on the south end of Los Angeles. And it's, a, it's a long peninsula that goes out into the water and has fantastic surf. And that it was the Waikiki of California. So back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, you had San Onofre, you had Paddleboard Cove, and you had Malibu, and I was surfing Paddleboard Cove. And there was a sense of history all around you, us, but in the 70s, we were very forward-thinking. It was all about the shortboard revolution still. But I, I sensed the enormity of, of where I was growing up, even though nobody talked about it. For example, the Beach Boys went to Redondo Beach High School, which is just basically down the road. Yeah. And we'd go down to the pier, and there'd be a... A, a statue of, of a great surfer from the distant past, and I'd wonder who is that, and I'd kind of look into it, and it, you know, um, and so I felt it though I was kind of alone in appreciating it. As a matter of fact, uh, an old gentleman named Dave Constable, who was old when I started surfing every day in 1976, and he surfed with Duke Kahanamoku, 
So he would be out there to just all of a sudden just go off on a story of surfing with Tom Blake and the Duke and what surfing meant and, you know, his life as a surfer. And, you know, you just sit there as a kid going, wow, that's cool. <laughs> and so I, I had that um, advantage of growing up there and, and appreciating that sense of deep history. And then, of course, the 1960s was only 10 years earlier, 10, and by the time I was in, in the middle of high school, uh, what, 1981, uh, it was like 12, 13 years ago that the longboard era ended, but there was still a lot of longboards around. I mean, there was they were everywhere, so it was not hard. For so me that, to, that's in the early 80s? Yeah. There was still a lot of, um, lot of males around at, at that period in, in that area? Yeah. Because I know, like... Um, my stepdad was making boards here in the in the seventies, and it was more sort of. Um, I mean, you, you can see that sort of just the change of um, of boards over that period, and that's just that mad progression that went from like super old bottom, you know, sh shorter sort of sixties boards, you know, into the flatter, you know, twin fins, and then you know, into the into the thruster, way more rocker, you know, just that development that that it, it it's kind of like as if in that ten year period all this stuff happened and then just got like put on a shelf and forgotten, yeah. you know, and now it's sort of, it's all being pulled back off the shelf and everyone's sort of picking bits and pieces and, 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 you know, going back to channels and messing around with rolled bottoms. And there's all of these kind of blends of stuff that I'm seeing a lot of now, which is super exciting where people are taking, you know, bits and pieces and, and sort of developing it and making these really sort of contemporary boards with it now, oh. which is super exciting. I am so stoked to hear you say that. Like, it, that era of experimentation was so fun. And you read the articles from that era, and there's just excitement, you know, just brimming. It's uh, boiling with excitement for new surfboard design and new ways of enjoying surfing. And to have that, relive that now. Well, to is grow, so to exciting. grow up with it back then, yeah. Tom, and now to be like, seeing it all coming back again does it sort of make you go oh like do you roll your eyes a bit and go oh you know these guys think that they're doing stuff that's brand new but there was dudes doing it in the 70s and you can sort of remember <laughs> you know both sides of, the, of it sort of thing does it yeah no i don't roll my eyes i get excited I <laughs> yeah that's eyes. cool just, that's awesome man stoked out of my yeah. mind to, you know to have you say that and mm. um and that the guys are going back and, and reliving that stuff there's so much to it because uh I'm going to go talk about, you know, my research and, and my thoughts yeah, on man. surfing. Yeah. And that is surfing creates an identity of who we are, you know, and largely we identify with our surfing aspect to ourselves. And if you took, I'm a hardcore surfer, if you took the surfing out of me, I wouldn't be the same person. I'd be like taking my lungs and my heart out. Like I wouldn't be the same if you took the surfing part out of me. So the, the surfing part is a part of me and it's a part of you and it's a part of our identity and it's a part of who we are. And we have the opportunity to create our own identity and, um, and, and experiment and to develop ourselves. And, and I think that by having so much opportunity in, in appreciating all this design, appreciating history, we have more ingredients to choose from, more colors, more music, more, more ingredients to put ourselves together to make ourselves a better person, a diversion. And of course, this is the exact opposite of what was happening through the 90s, the yeah, 2000s. Yeah, absolutely, man. That would have been pretty tough. I mean, because you were making boards all throughout that period, yeah? Yeah, So, oh, so yeah. You've, you've been in the board industry um, since the 80s, oh, early 80s? or Yeah, well, I I didn't really start making boards 
full time until I moved to Australia. Mm. But I, I was always shaping boards. But yeah, I, I was team rider for lots of people, and I, I spent ten years with Donald Takayama. Oh wow! So okay. I was, yeah. I was very in the industry, and I, I yeah. started shaping in 1978 when I was 12 years old, and so I was always shaping and doing stuff, but really involved in the surf industry in different ways the whole time. Yeah, awesome. That's fantastic. So, um, so with that development and, and working with Takayama, like you've obviously seen some massive changes throughout the industry and you just sort of touched on um, the, the 80s and the 90s and that sort of just that atypical white fucking, you know, shortboard thruster wow, and, and it sort of just became the norm, you know, um, and that was just that, that sort of, that was the only board design for like the next 20 Thirty years, you know. It was so painful, and it just went on forever. I mean, God, we just, we just think, is this ever gonna end? Like in the nineties, we we're thinking, is this ever gonna end? And it's and sure enough, it slowly ended. It's kind of like a glacial glacier melting, you know, it just imperceptibly slowly. So, happened. so, what do you think it was, Tom? That like that, that just sort of made people get sort of really ingrained in that one sort of style of board and really sort of stuck. What? What do you think was the, the behind that? Well, the reason it happened was the press was owned by the big three, Billabong, Quicksilver, and Rip Curl. And I knew the guys at Surfer and Surfing Magazine, and they would actually have to go to the big three and ask them to permission to put the cover, because the cover had to be, had one of their logos on the cover at the time. Mm. And... Those three basically ran the surf shops, ran the surf industry, ran the magazines. They did an absolute brilliant job of dominating mm. and turning it into a monopoly. And they owned surfing and they owned the press. And what's happened now is the internet. Social media, everyone's got these little bits and pieces. Everyone's out in their little bit. Yeah. And it's a direct forum now. It's where, a direct forum. You saw, you saw the Quicksilver and them crumble as social media came on, as the internet came on, they crumbled. Mm because they mm. could not hold on to their position. But they couldn't hold on to it anyway. I mean, mm. the surfers have uh, a rebellious element. Mm. There's a bit of punk in, in there's everyone. A of, there's, yeah. a bit of, there's a bit of rebellion. And I've yeah. got to say, you know, dude, if you're sponsored, you're not a rebel. You know? Mm. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're getting paid to surf, mm. you gotta, you're not a rebel anymore. You're, you're part of the system. Mm. And I was just so stoked that, uh, that everybody like, oh, Man, you know, I'm sponsored. I mean, it's like, dude, that's not a compliment, dude. Like, there's so much more to it. Yeah, I want to, I want you know, anyways. No, you know what, you know what, Tom? I, I do want to touch on that a little bit because I'm I'm sort of a bit of a, a left fielder. I'm not one of the guys that grew up in the industry. Um, I grew up in North Queensland, so I grew up in a, in a cane farming community. So very, very remote, very sort of distance from, um, from surfing. So... Um, for me, like my first waves was surfing the Barrier Reef, you know, when it was when it was working. I've had some incredible waves up, really? up on the and there's some little spots we could talk about when the camera when the microphone's off and, and I can I can <laughs> I can chat to you about a couple of spots, Tom, that'll probably blow your mind. But um, and having said that, like I'll, I'll external sort of force coming into the surf industry, and I think um, what you're talking about or touching on with um, you know the sponsorship and the culture yeah. and the value. Of surfing and yeah. the value of that identity, for me was um, it, it's yeah I'm super passionate. I got no interest in, in being a performance surfer or you know, but I'm very passionate about um, about making boards and about the culture and about alternative surfing. Um, 
so I think you know that that's something that's really important and, and something that guys like yourself and and um, people have been pushing behind the scenes probably a lot for a lot of years you know yeah. um, and so it's awesome to be just even sitting down and having this chat and talking about you know the alternative sort of surfing world you know yeah the, the alternative surfing world is always really important I've got it um, when I was in San Diego around 1990, 91, you had uh, the surf industry was worried about the backyarders um, taking over and saying, oh man, these backyarders are ruining the surf industry. We can't pay our laborers enough. And then they thought all the jobs were going to go to Mexico. And, and so um, a surfboard industry association started. And I, I just graduated from law school and I was um, an expert at hazardous material waste and occupational safety regulations. And so they nominated, nominated me as the executive director of the surfboard industry of California. And so I was able to talk to the, all the heavy shapers, uh, all the very top people in the industry about what was happening. And then so I went to Donald Takiaba and I said, Donald, have you joined? And Donald was just so classy. He goes, oh, Tom, it's just going to be a witch hunt. It's all going to end in tears, Tom. You know what? They're, they're trying to shut down the backyarders. The backyarders are where it's at. The backyarders are the heart and soul of the industry, Tom. And, you know, I don't want you to ever go after a backyard surfboard shaper. And, and Donald was, just came from a spiritual place, you know, just so far in the ether. And, of course, Donald was right. And the surfboard industry completely collapsed when Clark Foam turned against it and... Oh, it was just the, it was just a classic situation. Surfers are rebels, and they always will be. And uh, and that that's we have to rejoice in that. We have to rejoice in the fact that there is a backyard, and that that's actually a lot of my research. Is that what makes surfing so bitchin'? The reason surfing is like punk rock. The reason surfing keeps changing is because there's a low barrier of entry. Like you can make surfboards, I can make surfboards. I'm in a shed here, and I'm making surfboards for the best surfers in the world. Yeah. And there's a low barrier, mm. and the, we believe we can do it, and the mm. culture supports us. As soon as somebody comes up with something goofball out there, they look at it on social media, and it works, they want one. Mm. you know. And all of a sudden, and the, the fewer there are, the more they want it. Mm. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like rock and roll. It's mm. like, but there's no, you know, it's, it's like rock and roll, but you, you can only see it live. You know, there's no, there's no recordings, mm. because the only way you're going to experience it is you got to get one of those boards under your arm and paddle it out. And that's the exciting. So that's, in that way, surfing. Is, a, is an art form of just extraordinary proportions because it has a low barrier. Anybody can do it. Anybody can be the best in the world tomorrow. Well, Tom, I, I love that you just said that. Um, I think that um, if there's any kids out there that are listening and going, oh, I, you know, I can't become a surfer or I can't be involved in the surf in industry because, you know, I don't surf like Kelly Slater or... Um, you know, or Mick Fanning or something like that. Well, I beg to differ. I think what we're talking about right now, I'm hoping, you know, gets people excited because exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it takes time. You've got to do your apprenticeship like anything. If you want to be good at something, if you want to become an artisan at something, if you want to succeed at something, you've got to put a lot of time and a lot of effort into it. And anything that you do in life um, that is going to, you're going to reap a good reward from is going to is going to be a lot of hard work and and you got to dedicate yourself to it whether you want to be a bloody musician or a, a, a board builder or you know whatever it is you want to do but yeah i love that man i think that's fantastic you know that um that that there is that rebel element and 
manufacturing, I mean, you spend a bit of time studying, um, uh, like the value of surfing, right? Yeah. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sort of what you learned and and sort of where that where that sort of plays in. Well, the the value of surfing is, oh, well, you know what's funny? So I I started my PhD and I, I was um, hired to give a talk at the university day, and so I was talking about how important surfing is to my advisors. And they said, look, Tom, you need a hook. Like, you're, you're going to lose them straight up. Can, how much money is it worth? You have, to, you have to put everything in money values. And I'm just like, going, oh, my God. Like this. And there was a real light bulb moment for me. I said, well, of course, you've got to put something in money values in order to talk to just about everybody. And so I said, well, if you, you know, if, if, how much is a wave worth? And I did this, all this kind of research and the, the wave pools and so forth and and if you go to a contest, like like you'll you pay one hundred and twenty five dollars minimum to surf Noosa, basically to do, to go to the Noosa Festival of Surfing, so you can get Noosa with six people out for a half hour. I mean, that's it. And so it's like twelve dollars wave. Every every good wave you surf is basically twelve dollars. And I, and all of a sudden, I quickly came to surfing is worth four hundred and twenty five million dollars a year to the Sunshine Coast alone at twelve dollars a good wave. So all and so all the oh Jesus it's, it's really valuable isn't it? I said yeah well it's what we think about it's what we do there's just not a, a money value attached to it but it's still very very valuable so um, but it's even more valuable than that I mean that actually cheapens it because as I said earlier it, it's who we are and there's nothing more important than our own identity there's just that's it that that's who you are it's your being mm. and that's what what surfing develops and um, okay. Like Tom Blake spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this, and Tom Blake was the greatest, really surf inventor shaper of the last century. You have Duke Kahanamoku, who is great, but Tom Blake really ran with so many aspects of surfing, surf the look of surfing even he, he defined even today was was um, defined so much by Tom Blake that it, it's hard to imagine. Um, and Tom Blake. Uh, spent the first, well, so many years of his life surfing with Duke Kahanamoku and surfing all over the place. And then he became a philosopher as he couldn't really surf anymore. And he said, look, surfing is communicating with God. Okay, Nature equals God. When you paddle out and go surfing, you're with nature, you're with God. So when you're surfing, you're with the divine. And end of story kind of right there but then it you know it kind of goes on it says it develops your skills it develops who you are and the value of that is is astronomical and I, and I think of uh, sometimes I I think you know with our modern world if if you're talking to God say all of a sudden bang you're talking to God and the phone rings are you going to answer the phone in this day and age, you probably would. <laughs> <laughs> I know you wouldn't. Dude, you wouldn't answer the phone if you're talking uh, to God. In this, in this day and age, Tom, with with the with the bloody short, um, <laughs> with, with the short mindset that we've all got, you know, we we probably would, you know. <laughs> so that's so, yeah, the value of surfing. I, mean, I don't think it could possibly be understated uh, how important really enjoying surfing is. Uh, it, it, it in retrospective, as, as I get older and. Uh, and I talked to lots of older people, you know, they, they talk about surfing. Bob McTavish gave this great story. So Bob and I were in talking to Bill Wallace. And so Bill Wallace is, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Australian uh, waterman, designer waterman in, in Australian history. And 
Bob uh, was, was, was talking to me kind of aside, and he said, you know, Tom, he talked to his dad when he was in the same situation. And Bill said, or um, Bob, Bob McTavish said to his dad, like, what do you think about? You know, you're, you've been sitting here for years, like basically in this, in this situation. What do you dream about? And he whispered something. And so Bob got closer and closer. And he goes, surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so that's how, that's how valuable surfing is. I mean, it's not a monetary value, but we have got to get out of our monetary mindset. Of, of the value of surfing. The value of surfing is creating good, strong, happy people. Yep. And according to Tom Blake, you're talking, you're basically making divine beings who are becoming closer to God. And I don't think that's really, you know, outside of, of normalcy. I mean, actually, I think that's really part of the conversation that we need to have is how important is your spare time? Because, dude, we've got a lot of it. You know, like a lot of other mm. countries, and I've been to lots of places, but they don't have that you know kind of spare time. Mm. And and we do have, especially on the Sunshine Coast here. You know, we, we're a, we're awash in spare time and enjoying it. And I think that you know we, we wow, you just hate to hear somebody whinge on the Sunshine Coast, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, my my wife, she's from Las Vegas, and she goes, oh, everybody. You know, everybody's just so nice here. Everybody's too nice. She's like, I want to go back to the city. You know, nobody talks to each other. Nobody says hello. And I'm like, man, how can you, how can you not love the coast? So we're going back to Vegas, and um, you know, I think she, she likes, um, I don't know, where people aren't as nice. I love the coast. I love, I love the vibe here. I love the waves. There's still spots that you can go and and get a wave on your own. You know, oh, and that's epic. Yeah. yeah. People complain about the crowds and the points and so forth. And, of course, most of us moved here for the points. Mm. The points mm. are, are incredible. But still, there's lots of other ways, like you just said. I'm a, bit of a, I'm a bit of a lone soldier. I like to go for a little adventure and find my own little beachy. And Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit selfish. I'm not much of a sharer. Yeah. <laughs> I never have been. <laughs> you know, it's, getting, it's getting harder and harder, Tom, for sure, to find those little secret spots. You know, there's just different ways to enjoy surf. Like, I went up, I've got a, a buddy we ride toothpicks so we each have these big long 16 18 foot toothpicks that we love to ride and there's a big swell and so we drive up to double island point and the swell is kind of big on the beach but we get around the point and there's absolutely nothing inside the base so we go back and i said all right you know toughen up we're gonna actually do something we're gonna paddle out there because there's a big gutter real deep gutter then it would shallow out and the wave would break not real hard but kind of crumble out there, close out, just big closeouts, and then they'd break into the gutter. Mm-hmm. And I said, "You just take off and go straight." And uh, oh my God, like, it was like, that was the, the most memorable surf I've had in years. Is double and triple overhead that waves that are kind of just crumbling and looking straight towards shore, take it off on a sixteen foot finless surfboard, and you catch the wave so early, mm. like you're in the swell, mm. and you are going so fast that you have to angle. But the problem is that you go out in front of the wave too early and then mm. the wave breaks behind you and mm. you just get blasted so you actually it, it's a real trick to ride those boards to actually keep on your feet till you make it to the gutter but you don't really care anyway because you get blown off your board and you that's swim 20 thrill. feet that's you're in the awesome, gutter that's awesome man yeah but that so that's just an example of like mm. of, of how uh, how we different need to ways open to our approach lives. it yeah yeah for sure. I mean you know mm. we live in the wave paradise there's mm. so many ways to enjoy all the waves you don't you need to yeah that's the next the next paradigm shift with that I think that goes hand in hand with what we were talking about earlier is 
looking at all these different boards and getting excited about writing different boards. Well, you know, I think the reason a lot of us write our different boards at the points is just merely because there are lots of people there, mm. <laughs> you know, and if there's a billion, if there's 10,000 people out in the, at a closed out beach break, we'd probably go over surf over there because, mm. you know, we actually want to show our wares and show what we're doing. Mm. So I don't know, it's just fun. Yeah, no, that is. And I think, yeah, I mean, board development and board design is, it's sort of, it's, it's gone backwards and it's also gone back into the future a little bit as well. Um, so I know you're getting pretty big into the, like the Hawaiian style, um, shapes there. Yeah. So, um, I, I know you like, you're, you're a history buff with surfing too. And I really enjoyed a couple of years ago when we sat down, had a chat about, um, well, well, we're at a surfers forum and you were telling, telling everyone about, um, the history of surfing. So, I mean, how far back does it go and how far, like, what's the, the, the Federalist sort of history, like known, known to us of surfing? It's obviously in, in, in Hawaii, isn't it? it well, in, in Hawaii, um, I, when I went there years and years ago, I surfed a place called Lyman's. And that, so it was 1982, I surfed Lyman's. And it has these big rocks in, in, as you go across the wave. So you take off on this left. And because I grew up in Palos Verdes where there's lots of rocks, they didn't really phase me that much. But literally, you do a bottom turn around a rock that sticks up out of the water, come up and hit the lip, do a bottom turn and then there'd be a big shelf in front of you and you'd have to really negotiate whether to go, you know, pop out the front or, you know, try to go on the inside of it, get the next section. But there was kind of these kind of shelves. And um, as I was riding the Aleas, I thought, geez, that would be a good wave. Lyman's would be a great wave because that's what you look for. You want to, to have about two inches of water under your board on a well overhead wave. And that's where, that's where the Alea works best, you know, and the Alea is the ancient Hawaiian style surfboard mm-hmm. that that I, um, I saw the Bishop Museum, I saw the ancient boards, I started remaking them. So I went back to the Big Island of Hawaii to surf Lyman's in that area again, and I ran into a guy, and this is where kind of a funny divine intervention comes in. As I came out of the water on this flat day, I, I was actually belly boarding on it, but maybe knee high waves out at Lyman's and kind of going across the rocks. And I'm standing on the side of the road, and I hear this car, beep, 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 and this car this pulls over the side of the road, and is that Tom Wagner? Oh, my God. And so the guy comes over, and he just goes, you know, I've seen your, your videos on YouTube, but, you know, it's just so funny. Do you Look over there. And, he, and so I'm standing there, and he says, look at Lyman's Point. He says, yeah, and you see that, that ledge right there, and there's this clear ledge, mm-hmm. and then a ledge above that, you know, mm-hmm. clear ledge, but... They're there, but they're overgrown and so forth. Mm-hmm. And he goes, "That was those were grandstands. This is where the ancients surfed. And they surfed here a long time ago. And in ancient times when they'd have surf contests, those were the grandstands where the, where the Hawaiians would sit and watch the surfing here at this, this left point. And the penny just dropped. It's like, yeah, they surf there because it's right, you know, within, you could, you could, you could throw a rock and hit somebody, no worries. Mm. And it, it, at head high, it just drains out over these shelves where the alaya would just blast out speed. And then it has this nice fat shoulder where you could just see the, the, the alaya working it and spins and the amount of, um, oh gosh, uh, gymnastics basically you could do on that wave on mm. a Finland surfboard. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was the, kind of the confirmation. And so you're going back to how long surfing has been around. So... Um, as I was doing my research for my book and the, and the PhD that I'm hoping to get, um, 
I got uh, another friend named, uh, well, another friend sent me a report when the government bought that land in the 1980s. They they did a report to find out the historical importance of Lyman's Point and where there where the area was. And so there was about a hectare of property where the kings lived, and King Kamehameha grew up there, learning how to surf there in uh, the late 1700s, early 18, well, late 1700s, and it was made 22 generations before Kamehameha as a surfing uh, club. Yeah, right. As, okay. as a palace for surfing, for kings to learn how to be watermen, how for the royalty to enjoy surfing, to have surf contests. So that's how far back it goes there. So it goes back to like at least the 1400s. But then again, that you know, it was already advanced enough in the 1400s in Hawaii to say, all right, well, let's see. Let's build a castle. <laughs> you know, you're on this point because we got this sick left-hander. So <laughs> it, it just goes back and back and back. Mm. And, and I don't think that there's no reason to think that it evolved from then. It would be just as easy to say that surfing devolved from them because we don't really know. Except one of the first um, people, uh, one of the first kings or uh, royalty of Hawaii who went back and forth from Tahiti, we don't, you have no idea when that actually was. You know, they say around the 1,200s or so, but it could have been earlier. And he was looking for surf breaks. We ended up surfing on, on, on Kauai. You know, he just says, yeah, he went back, to, back and forth to Tahiti. Tell, tell the people at Tahiti I ended up on Kauai because there's really nice waves. And I bet he ended up at Hanalei Bay. Well, but to say that you know he was the first to surf Hanalei Bay is you know mm. only, or whether he was hunting waves. But um, that's yeah. I mean, well, that's we know incredible. he was hunting waves. Yeah? yeah, it says he was looking for good surf. Oh wow! To, to retire, he was going. I need, I need a good break to retire on. <laughs> so that's how that's how you know important surfing was to these people in ancient Hawaii. The way you could become royalty from a slave was to surf well. Wow, that's insane. That's that's. I love that's beautiful, you know, and and how many people who surf today know that, um, you know, it's six hundred plus potentially, you know, thousands of year year old sport. You yeah, know, I, th- I think a lot of people are, when they talk about surfing, it's this new sport that is um, maybe the nineteen twenties when the Western world sort of jumped on board with it and 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 started running with it. But we're talking about something that's that's ancient, an ancient sport. I think we're talking about a very, very ancient sport, and I think that... Uh, but, but even a sport, I mean, to call something a sport, I mean, we're talking more so about um, about a lifestyle or a culture, you know, that, that the, the Hawaiians have been doing for, for hundreds of years, yeah. you know, so it's more of a lifestyle, really, isn't it? It, it is a, a lifestyle with a, with a value on surfing and, and riding wave, being close to nature. Being close to God. Being close to God, going back yeah. to Tom Blake. And, and I can relate with that, Tom. Like, I think any surfer can, yeah. is that, you know, you, you have a shitty day, you, you paddle out, um, you're sitting on your board and you're in nature and it all just washes away and you have clarity. Everything yeah. makes sense, Yeah, you know, and, and it's that being in nature and that sort of the kinetic energy of, of water sort of running over you. Yeah. And then, yeah, you, you drop into a wave and... Um, it's like being with God, really, isn't it? It is. And I'm, I'm quite sure that all over the world people were surfing. See, um, in order to stand up on a surfboard, you need very specific conditions. And those conditions aren't everywhere by any stretch. And so Hawaii is, is unique 
in that it had those conditions and it had the the, the woods. It had a, a wood called Willy Willy, which is a very light wood that they had the time to figure out how to seal. But they had the waves and surfing. It could have evolved other places, but they were probably belly boarding. And belly boarding is a great way of surfing as well. So Papua New Guinea, potentially the Solomon Islands and places like that, yeah. where um, they were were surfing as well. They were they were belly boarding. Yeah, but uh, okay. but our surfing history blatantly says that surfing was only stand up surfing, which completely puts a cap on on the understanding of surfing. Um, and so I would I would argue that belly boarding is just as much surfing as anything else, and you go faster and on and on. And then, um, like, just recently looking at surf research, the, the, the surf research website is just a fantasy land of things. And they're talking about the Hoffa uh, surfing that's been going on in Israel. And there's a guy up there making these Hoffa fishing boats where the fishermen used to surf in. So they'd have actually, they were surfers as well. And those go back to, far, to the pharaohs. Oh, so wow. they go they go all the way back. Wow. This, this Hoffa type craft. And then in, um, in, uh, in South India, all over South India, people were surfing on these um, little rafts that they called catamarans. They called it a catamaran. It's actually, uh, before the Westerners called the catamaran a catamaran, it was actually uh, a surfboard made with three logs lashed together. They'd actually surf on waves in those three logs. And, dude, so, I, I can't wait to go to India and try those things. What was that um, website, Tom, that you just mentioned? Surfing History? Uh, surf Research. Surf Research. Surf, surfresearch.com. Okay, that's one I haven't heard of, and there's a lot of info about oh. the history, obviously. Deep history. Oh yeah. wow, that's awesome. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be looking that up for sure. And then there's another website called uh, LegendarySurfers.com, and that's uh, my buddy Malcolm Galt. Will um, Malcolm, who's just very, very crucial. Awesome. And um, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll jump back on that later on, Tom. That's that's awesome. Um, a few things for me to learn and, and chase up on as well. So, so the history of surfing um, is Hawaii, um, and then in the in the sort of the Western world, and the Duke obviously introduced it um, to. Well, he's, I guess he's the figurehead anyway of of, of traveling around and and um, introducing surfing to to California. Yeah, and the, and then Australia, I, I suppose, was the next on the list, wasn't it? Um, actually, it's, that's not not a quite exactly right, but it doesn't really matter. Close enough. <laughs> well, yeah, you can see I'm, I'm, I've still got plenty to learn. A lot to yeah. learn about the history. I mean, George Freeth came to California. Mm. But um, it, yeah, I think what the Duke did was created the culture of aloha. And that is enormously important for, for surfing. And I, it cannot be under, underestimated that the Duke came here and just made surfboards with people did everything he possibly could to promote surfing. In the beginning of Tom Blake's books, he says, you know, surfing's a, is a great pastime. It's, you know, not doesn't talk about God, but he basically says the same thing. Like, yeah, it's a great uh, a sport and activity for, you know, men and women all around the world to get involved in, in surfing because it's a, it's a good, clean activity. And, so that, and the Duke was the ambassador of Aloha. And I think we we still somehow feel aloha in surfing in that, you know, you, you feel like a, a kinship with surfers. They are what we call ohana or, or the Hawaiian word is family. And I love Lilo and Stitch, you know. they they These cartoons just nail surfing. They just actually really they do such a bloody good job with it. Like um, Lilo and Stitch, you know, 
the, um, the little monster, you know, the, the, his older sister wants to send him away. And he's like, he's Ohana. And it's just like, oh, you know, he's Ohana. <laughs> and, um, and they really, they actually capture so much about surfing when they say that. Because I, I, I think that surfing is a family and I think it binds people together. And it's because of that, it's enormously valuable. When I, I came to Australia in the 1999, 1998 actually, it was kind of the era of the shortboard revolution, uh, shortboarding uh, hom- uh, homogeny, really, where they just owned everything, and the press and so forth. And they were saying, "There, you know, surfing's a bunch, you know, ohana or you know, community spirit is a bunch of bullshit." You know, when you paddle up, you know, pull up to your spot, and you see a bunch of surfers out, you just wish they'd all burn in hell forever. You know, you know, you just want all those waves to yourself. And I read that, I just said, "Man, times have got to change." You know, that that's actually not quite accurate. And, uh, and any surfer that's traveled enough pretty much knows that surfing by yourself is, is enormously lonely. So there's, there's a definitely a balance. <laughs> yeah, you, you, need, you need at least one mate, Tom. <laughs> you need, a, you need yeah, a mate just, or two? Just, just one or two mates. I mean, that, it that's didn't plenty. happen unless somebody saw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy with one mate, that'll do. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, um, that's awesome. Just just grabbing a, 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 a bottle open here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no a, worries. A screwdriver to open up one of these Coronas that Benny brought over. <laughs> so sweet because Benny's getting ready to go to Mexico, so he's just warming himself up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all we drink is the Coronas at home. You know, my <laughs> wife's Mexican, and we've got to have the limes in there. So, um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Mexico. You've obviously spent a bit of time over there. Yes. Um, what, what's your sort of favorite destination or favorite location in, in Mex, do you reckon? You know, I love all of it. I just, I've did, I could just go on and on with, with just stories. Um, I, I find the people are very, very nice. You know, down to earth. You just get away from the cities. Hey, Tom, let's not let's not tell the, everyone that because I mean, a lot of people are probably. I mean, like um, Indonesia, for example, it's crazy, crazy busy. There's just people yeah. everywhere. I mean, you you jump over to Baja, it's it's a lot different. You know, like Americans are still very scared. Like you're probably one of the few. Um, uh, I guess you're an expat, but like a lot of people will still try and warn you against going there, you know? There's, yeah. there's still a lot of sort of threats and I mean, there's still that ed- edginess and that sort of danger as well to, to Mexico, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. You know, mm. And I think it's gotten a lot worse. Uh, when we I made a surf movie called Siestas Nolas mm-hmm. and I came to Australia showing that surf movies and theaters and RSLs and so forth and it's, it's actually a really good movie called Siestas and Olas. I'm going to look that up. Oh, so it's a it's a travel uh, adventure of uh, Josh Farborough and I, and then Mark Cavanaugh. We meet as as we're traveling, and are driving down through Mexico. And it's a lot of us surfing, but mostly it's about the culture, the vibe, the feel of Mexico. Little stories of each town that we go to, and we wanted to capture because at the time of 1995, I guess it was was when Mexico was probably the safest and the most friendly it had ever been. And it just seemed like surfing was, was just booming. It was a very exciting time. Uh, and, and Mexico was wide open. And it, I think it's much more dangerous now than it was then. It's sad, man. Like, a lot of it, it's all this bloody war on drugs and it's a lot of drug cartels have taken over, which which sucks, you know. To me, it's like the states are sort of getting to a point now where there's a lot of sort of you know, a bit more de- deliberalization and, um, 
I don't know, I, I think they're still locking people up, you know, and to me, if, if they could just fucking get on with it and deliberalize, I think it'd, it'd make a lot of those um, sort of cartels go away and, you know, make Mexico a lot safer because the people there, like you just said, are incredible, you know. Oh, gorgeous. My, like my wife's Mexican, like her family are, are all, and they're the most beautiful people, friendly and, and generous, generous and, and honest and kind people, you know, and I feel as they... Uh, tourism gets affected a lot, a lot down there because of you know uh, the cartels and that, and you know the, the whole war on drugs. I think is is a is a big causation from that. You know, it, it is, it is. Um, a couple of uh, quick comments. Yeah. Um, when I would be going down there, when I was going down there a lot, even before Siesta Snowlass, it always bugged me because the Americans were such imperialists in a way, and, and everybody that went down there, in that they brought surfing. And if they found, you know, a sort of new spot or, you know, they would, they thought they all of a sudden were a local there. And so you have a little Mexican family on the beach, you know, making um, tortillas and, and fish tacos and selling you beer. And then you have this absolute idiot California standing there saying, hey, this is my spot. I'm a local here. You know, no new faces. Not. Nah, I think it's a bit too busy. you got to leave. And... and and so many times when the Mexican families kind of got wise to this dickhead saying, hey, you guys can't surf yeah, here. You're it, done now. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, it ended in tears, I tell you that, <laughs> quite a few times. But uh, yeah, no, I, I got the brunt of that because in our surf movie, Siesta Snow Loss, we went down there. Before we set up and filmed at any particular spot, we would say, you know, this is our camera. This is who we are. We're gonna sh- we would like to shoot here and we will, you know, put this in this movie if you'd like. And, you know, they would say, well, my name is Jesus Juan Gonzalez Rodriguez. And you tell them that you come to my restaurant and come to my beach and it's very safe here and we'll look after you. And we go, okay, we will, we'll say that, you know. And that's what they wanted. Then we get back. And uh, so many, so many. Everyone people, went down. Well, well, well uh, people went down, but also our, our, our posters got torn down. We had bomb threats left, right, and center. Oh, wow, well, because people were like, what is yeah, that's my spot. Yeah. That's my spot. You know, them. <laughs> And, I, and, I, and that's just the funny thing about surfing is it, it brings out a real weird darkness where people, uh, they identify with something and it kind of becomes a religious attachment in, to something you have and it's so precious to you. And I, and I appreciate the preciousness that a, a special surf spot will hold to this one person saying it's, it's theirs. You mm. know, they want it like their own mm. kid, like, mm. you know. But at the same time, I would have to say, you know, I, I think that uh, the ancient Hawaiian style, the Duke Hanamoku style of sharing. You know, he would he was legendary for sharing and saying, no, 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 we, we share what we do, you know. There's, there's plenty of waves. And so I come from the school where a wave comes about every 8 to 12 seconds. Well, I agree. It's it's almost infinite. Like, if, if you try and, in, like, if you try and imagine infinity, and it's hard to think of, like, what infinity is, but one thing that, like, we're talking about, talking about, you know, being close to God or whatever. I mean, if you try and imagine how many waves are broken on planet Earth, yeah, you know, they're, they're every eight seconds all over. All over like, it's <laughs> all infinite. Over. It's fucking infinite. You know what I mean? So yeah. to go, oh, that's my wave or this is my spot is insane, you know. Oh. And I think the adventure is always going to adventure, you know. Yeah. Some, like, if, if, you're, if somebody's surfing and there's a bunch of people – Surfing here, well, the adventurer is always going to go and find, you know, the, the lonely spot or the, the, the next spot or the other spot. And the, yeah. those spots are, are still yet to be discovered. There's still places on, on Earth, you know. And every wave's different as well, you know. Yeah. 
the tide changes, um, the, a bit of water movement, the wind will change, and that, that'll change a location as well, you know. Yeah. So there's always that adventure, I think, and that's real. There is. I, I still honestly believe that most of the great waves aren't surfed, you know, or maybe just barely discovered mm. even. You know, all those atolls, like you were saying, the, the outer reefs out there mm. uh, in Queensland, the Great Barrier Reef, mm. and, and all over the place. There's heaps of waves. But then again, how, what, what you interpret to be a good wave it was relative to the way you want to surf the wave. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my wave now, as I get older, is more of a Waikiki. I, would, I want a wave that just crumbles. I want a wave that's large slow moving and crumbles because I want to get out there on my biggest board I want to take off early and I, and I find um, utterly invigorating uh, the, the dropping in on an olo so let's go back to the, the ancient Hawaiians uh, yeah man yeah sorry we were jumping around a bit yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know so now this is now perhaps uh, you know a, a couple uh, a couple of beers down mm. talking but the, the olo you know is something that almost no surfers have ever surfed before is the ancient Hawaiian big board it's, it was the, the surfboard of the royalty. Uh, they started at 16 foot long or so. With a very, very, very heavy, rolled top, rolled bottom. Gorgeous, almost looked like a, like a popsicle stick shape. But very, very intricate design within that shape. Uh, you, you have to go online and, and actually you know, see what an Ola looks like. And look so at my website. Ola, is it O-L-A or O-L-O? O-L-O. O-L-O. Yeah, yeah. But that style of surfing is what the kings did in, in Hawaii. And it's something that I would, you know, it, it's a whole genre of surfing, you know, an enormous genre of surfing that hardcore surfers, you know, with tats and short hair and all that stuff, you know, would throw them on one of those things and you, you're pretty humbled pretty quick, you know, just trying to paddle it in a straight line. And so they, uh, I, I like if, add, that would be my ultimate adventure. Like, design would be to find a wave like that and of course it's nearly not even rideable to most people they wouldn't even look at it as actually as a as a wave and that's to to, to master the olo to get that feeling it's like it's almost like canoe surfing and then the other surfing that i love is belly boarding riding the little wood belly boards and of course that is what the majority of people have surfed through history is the little wood belly board and it's um, i find it to be the most dynamic surfboard to ride and I, whenever I go surfing I have seven of them it's almost like picking a golf club because I look out there and I and I see oh geez okay it's a little bit fat you know I'm going to take the extra extra flexy one or oh my gosh look at that bowl section right there I want a hard rail you know I want to be able to pull into there and, and for me it's just this, it's actually nerding out to the extreme <laughs> you, know, you can't nerd out that hard on a regular board but you can nerd out on a belly board because all seven of them fit into your arm you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, that it's the the wave when you're looking for waves, it really is what you're looking for. And and I, I have such a wide variety of waves that I, I just you know get delirious when I think about going surfing. <laughs> so so Tom, I guess we haven't really spoken too much about actually um, your board manufacturer. Obviously, you started um, in the early 2000s when you came over sort of full time. Um, can you sort of just go into a bit of detail of, of that um, sort of development? Because like I, I love the stuff you're doing now. You're using a lot of sustainable um, materials. You're, you're doing a lot of eco-friendly boards, but you're also taking all of that knowledge that you've that you've you had um, as, as a as a pro surfer, and you've sort of you're, you're developing like so. You, as we were talking before we got started, you're sort of gluing together. 
you know, these, these performance or, or like these, these, um, these boards that work in all conditions but are also, you know, good for the environment as well. So I think that's, you know, very exciting. Um, so, yeah, can you sort of talk about that sort of development and, and where you came from and, and sort of where you're heading with, with, with a lot of that stuff? Okay. Well, um, when, it's a funny story. So I came to Australia and uh, surfing the points here, and I looked at the points, and I said, well, I need a single fin because uh, in California – I'd ridden lots of 1960s longboards, as I said. You know, I'd ridden, I had three balsa board, boardboards at one time and lots of uh, old mouths. And the hips are back and the noses are narrow. And I look at the points right there and I just said, that's the best nose riding wave I've ever seen. Uh, why is everybody riding rockered out single fin or uh, tri-fins? Why is everybody riding those hyper McTavish uh, tri-fins? So I, I looked for the blanks and I, I couldn't get a flat enough blank. So I said, well, I've got to put my own stringers in the blanks. And then the blanks at that time had wide noses and narrow tails, which was the, the performance tri-fin longboard. And I needed to add an extra inch in width in order to get my wide tail and, and narrower nose there. And Paul Josky introduced me to Polonia. So Paul Josky had made a hollow Polonia wood surfboard, and I surfed it, and I went, oh my gosh, that's just like my balsa wood boards. So, um, and, and at the same time, I needed... Wood, to, I needed at least an inch stringer to, to make the, the tails my, to, oh, wide mm. enough. Mm. So I got a whole bunch of Polonia and I'd get my blanks split so that I could put the rocker, nose rider rockers down, which is a you know, low rocker nose lifting the tail. And I started nose riding the points. And I wasn't alone. There was Josh Constable and, uh, and Jimmy Gamboa was coming over from California. Uh, with, that were kind of nose riding the points for the first time. And with the Polonia, all of a sudden I found that I would ding my boards up because I was surfing a lot back then and I'd have nose blocks and the big Polonia would fin in it. And I, I found that the Polonia doesn't absorb salt water. And that just blew my mind. So I, I would get a, a big smash uh, in my fin or in my stringer and so forth. And with balsa, it, but with balsa, you're all of a sudden you're going to delaminate. Mm. It's just going to go. All, if if yep. you get a big nose, a ding in the nose of your board with a balsa wood stringer, your fin is going to be falling sideways by the afternoon because the water will go all the way through your stringer and and and, and your fin will um won't, won't, oh wow it'll soak it up that that it, um that like hard. a sponge oh, unbelievable wow. yeah and so i was getting dings in my boards and it wasn't absorbing salt water so i did some tests with buckets you know fresh water salt water and sure enough that doesn't absorb salt water and that's that was it you know that was that and now you can see the firewire who uses polonia yeah. i think almost all wood surfboard makers in the world use polonia now mm. And that that's came from you know right where you're sitting, the, you know, the exact spot right there, is where, <laughs> right, where we where we figured it out. Mm. And so from then, um, I was making boards here, and my son was three years old, and my daughter was uh, just just born. And my son said, "Dad, your breath smells like resin." And I said, "Right. Well, okay. If I'm going to continue making surfboards in my house here, I'm going to have to get rid of resin." Mm. And so I I found the wood so I was just looking at the ceiling thinking how can I make a wood surfboard that will sell today but luckily enough at that time the world was awash with money I mean 2002 2004 mm -hmm. there was so much money in Australia that people would, would drop three thousand dollars on a surfboard and, you know mm -hmm. wouldn't happen now but it happened back then it was bizarre yeah, it's hard to even imagine that um, I mean I'm sure there still probably is that that sort of realm but I mean it's definitely it's a different industry now it's, sure. a, it's a different industry in a different world, and, and the world does change. And 
Um, yeah, I don't think that the world's going to be same tomorrow the way it is today because it won't be. We have to stay on top of the changes and and don't be afraid to try to make change because you're the only thing that's utterly insane is to think that the world's going to be the same tomorrow as it is today. That's that's what's ludicrous. Mm. So. Anyway, um, so I, I started making, I found a way to make wood boards from Polonia. And the, the first one I rode about four waves on before it filled up with water. The second one <laughs> I rode about six waves before I did it sucked. And the third wave, the thir- third board worked really well and is in a movie called Lines from a Poem. And it's in my promo videos. It, it, that was a, a great board. So then I nailed it. So um, they were heavy and they took a lot of commitment to surf, the big hollow wood boards. And as the hipster thing came along, and as the global financial crisis, that genre dried up, which is cool because it, it was great for about seven years. Then I went into making the Alayas, and I'd, and by that, while, while because the Hollywood boards were selling really well and had, had plenty of orders, I was able to go to Hawaii, see the uh, ancient boards of the Bishop Museum, come back, start making the finless Alaya surfboards, really spend a lot of time with those. With um with great surfers like Jacob Stuth, and then the pros like David Rosovich and Tom Carroll and Tom Curran, and uh, and Dan Malloy and lots of and, and Mike Stewart came on and we were experimenting with those with the Polonia, and the second time I went back to the Bishop Museum, you know I just looked at the boards and I said, geez, they wish they had Polonia because <laughs> the 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 wood that they had on Hawaii was actually pretty limited, and you had very hard woods like koa. A semi, a little bit softer wood, a little bit lighter wood, with the breadfruit tree, and then you had willy willy, which is like a balsa wood, which is uh, which absorbs water. So they had to spend an enormous amount of time fixing dings and and sealing. Anyways, so um, so you so sorry, just to step back there really yeah. quickly, just out of my own curiosity. So they would um, seal them with like a wax or some some description. Well, or would they would it be a beeswax or something like that back then or no? It, it, it's a long process. Basically, uh, they would take the, according to legend, they would take the board, uh, dry it out, then bear, cover it with mud and put it, bury it underground in mud so that the mud would seek into the pores. Then they'd take it out again, dry it out again, then rub it with river stones to smooth it out and, and smooth the mud on the top of the board. And then they would start oiling the board with kukui nut oil, um, ashes from the fire. And mixing it and, and rubbing it into the board, and layer after layer of kukui nut oil with ashes from the fire that would go in and seal the the little po- eight microscopic pores in the wood, and then they'd surf them. And uh, most of the stories from ancient Hawaii, actually all of them, say that the boards were black because that was from the soot from oh, rubbing wow. the, the that's, oil. That's bloody fascinating, isn't that interesting? So they're making like their own sort of type of resin type thing or a sealer. Like that's yeah, it's incredible. And and yeah. as you know, a few people have the time now, but some of the people that are really into the alayas that I make, you know, will put, end up putting 50 layers of linseed oil on them, and they come up with a marble surface. You know, they're hard as a rock, and it's like a glass job if you put that many layers of linseed oil on. Mm. Linseed, you know, the oils are beautiful things. Mm. We're, we're just so time poor now, where in the ancient mm. times, they had, had plenty they had a of time. Of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, they had a time to get that thing dialed in. <laughs> oh, yeah. So... So I was making alayas mm. through the financial crisis, and as one one sort of genre of surfboard I was making kind of fell off, um, that one took off. And then, um, but still making alayas, everybody's making alayas, and I, I gave away my templates. I didn't was not um, 
at all protective of the designs or the shapes or the wood or the techniques at all because I was more concerned with the surfboard becoming popular than I was with protecting my own market share. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I'm happy. I mean, really, that was a true, uh, one of the best feelings of my life was just sending off templates and, and, and telling people, you know, this is the wood you want to use. This is the, you know, when, when you mill it, ask for, you know, this, this cut glue it like this, make sure you've got perfect joints, this is the glue to use it, you know, blah, 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 to make sure that people could make good alayas, so that, uh, because a lot of people made bad alayas, surfed them once, they broke, they, they stopped it and never surfed them again. So, um, that went well, and then I, I, I wanted to make an alaya that floated to make some money, because uh, I, the alaya was enormously successful in every way except financially. So if I figured if I could make a floating alaya that, that was foamy, I'd do well, and uh, and it was kind of riding the wave of the the popularity that um, my friends and I had created, mm-hmm. and so Global Surf Industries made the Sea Glass Project uh, tuna and albacore, and the albacore still around. They still sell heaps, and they're great. They're really good finless surfboards. I'm really proud of that shape. Mm-hmm. And ten years later, which is now, I've been actually des- working on that shape for a decade, a full decade, on that that design. And it's still like, debatable whether I've topped it. <laughs> I don't think it's such a good shape that I'm, I'm actually, in retrospect, I, I was happy with that. And uh, so now I've, I've developed a way of making the finless boards with, uh, with thin layers of polonia veneer, still using the polonia, the same wood. So is that, that's your polonia like is on this yeah. board, yeah? The polonia is on the bottom, yeah? The polonia is on the bottom. So yeah. that'll give you that sort of rigidness. Because obviously, if you you got a cork um, sort of deck, so is this is this cork all the way through? No, no. So it's EPS, and okay. so I had yep. I had three major. I, I had the idea for the board, and it's so, just, sorry, sorry, Tom. This is just for the viewers. We're just yeah. we're having a look. We're sitting in um in Tom's enchanted <laughs> tree, and we've got a beautiful um, big nine foot board sitting in front of us, and we've got the podcast and camera sitting on it. It's got a cork deck. It wraps around, and there's a hard sort of veneer on the bottom, which is your polonia veneer. And veneer, and then there's an EPS core. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. So the, mm. uh, and then there's a stringer, and then the longer ones, there's actually a stringer running through. It, okay. A big All fat right, stringer cool. because yeah. um, mm-hmm. otherwise it'd break. Mm-hmm. It'd be too flexible. You need that. You need a bit of that rigidity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, the polonia is great because mm-hmm. it, um, you know, it, it, no matter if if you fill up the board with water somehow or other, you put a big rip in it, the, the stringer is going to be in, in good shape. But that that doesn't it won't affect the rigidity of the board, which is really important. But um, yeah, they. In order to make this board, I had to overcome quite a quite a few massive hurdles. One was getting a super dense EPS foam that you, when you stomp on it, it won't actually ding too much. I mean, like you could ride these boards for a year, knee paddle it for a year, and you'll get knee welts, but not out of control. We were definitely within the usable realm. And so um, when I. First started the sea glass project. I needed e- dense CPS foam, and they didn't make it in Australia. And so um, I mark- talked to Mark Kelly. And he got really great EPS foam from Thailand because Australia didn't make it. And then the next thing is to get the the sheets veneer sheets, two millimeter thick sheets of polonia, which is bloody hard to get. It took me working with uh, some great people to source this stuff and find a place that will do it and make these um, sheets of polonia. Because before making that getting cutting the polonia to thin sheets was a real nightmare. Very and, hard. And was there a, was there much of a like a polonia industry before, or is it is it mainly like a lot of the um, the um, 
Polonia that we're getting now is um, it's it's coming from from these farms. Was that was that always around? Was Polonia always around, or is it more so come into in, into the realm now? Is it because of surfing that there's a lot of Polonia around now, or was it always around for for other uses and materials? Oh my gosh! Well. Um, in Australia, it's just it's a story of tears. There's very few happy endings from the Polonia story in Australia. It was called a money tree, and people invested in Polonia. Oh, that was all those investments and stuff, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like pre, pre-GFC, pre everyone was investing in like um, the forestry and stuff. That was all Polonia, yeah. huh? Yeah, and they did, nobody people made People lost money, yeah. They lost money. Mm. Oh, my mm. God, did they lose mm. money. And I knew the shysters mm. had contact with the shysters that were selling them, and I was just looking at it going, you know, and, a, and a very, very quickly I saw that they were selling, you know, so many trees per acre. And then I'd go to the farm and I said, dude, they're three meters apart, man. These things aren't going to grow. Mm. You're going to sell them like crazy because they're going to grow like they're going to grow big in the first year and they will stunt. Mm. They need to be eight meters apart mm. in order for a plony tree to really rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And they'll grow fast, but they're, it's not a... <laughs> they're going to starve each other, essentially, if they're too close. Oh, yeah. Mm. You know, basically, they, they grow next to septic tanks really well because mm. they'll, they'll eat all of it. Mm. So, um, yeah, no, the, the Polonia... Um, Story in Australia is not a, is not a happy one, but now there's one uh, person. Uh, uh, anyway, go, go if you've wanted to find him, just look up Polonia um, down down and, and uh, uh, Polonia 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 Wood Surfboards um, on the, on the net. Go mm-hmm. talk to David David Evans. David Evans is the man that has really worked with the surfers a lot. He's he's a great guy. Uh, yeah, if you, if you need Polonia. Go to the website, type in David Evans, and it used to be called Polonia Plantation Shutters, which is a dumb name, mm. but it's, I think it's Polonia Surfboard Supplies now. So he was so so it was available, or it wasn't so so available before, and it's a lot more available now. Yeah, it was not available before. Yeah, okay, and, well, uh, and uh, Paul Joski made the surfboard, and that was the poster child. And then Paul, and then all of us, and I was the poster child. For surf for Polonia in Australia, and I was on lots of interviews talking about how great Polonia is. And back when in my full production years, probably for five years, I was easily the biggest buyer of Polonia in Australia. And my driveway here, as far as you can see to your car over there, yep. was just you know about two meters high of just straight Polonia. I'd have four uh, cubic meters of Polonia in my driveway at any moment. Oh wow! Okay. When we were really making, when we were really moving. Wow! And uh, but then after. That and and my my, surf, my surfboards kind of deteriorated. Then the uh, the backyard guys, uh, the garage makers, were the buyers of Polonia, and so now they're the the mainstay. But it's pretty sporadic, you know. They don't they're not big producers by any stretch. Well, that's the thing that fascinates me because I mean I've I've did a podcast and the the listeners, if, if they didn't hear it, with um Steve Han who who has the ETC. Um, boards and yeah, he's he's using a lot of Polonia and he's sort of been sourcing it, you know, bits and dribs and drabs sort of locally and doing some awesome stuff with um, Polonia boards. But the thing that blew my mind is like his boards. I mean, he's a big guy. He's a hundred kilo guy, and he's showing me boards that he's taken to Samara and surf double overhead. He's had two and three years, and these things have got no depressions in them. And and obviously the way that he's building them, he's got it pretty dialed in. And I know he's been talking a lot with yourself and. You know, pulling a lot of information, but like these things are strong. Oh, you know? well, look at the fire They're, fire they're so yeah. strong, Tom. Um, they're, they're really light, like way yeah. lighter than a, tra- a trad surfboard. 
you know, there's just positive buoyancy. There's a lot. There's, there seems to be a lot of benefits to, to these materials. You know, there, there is a lot of benefits, and it's just happening right now. Mm. You know, and, and we're going berserk. The guys, the guys like myself. Mm. You know, I, I still, even though I'm a well-known surfboard shaper, I still consider myself mostly uh, a garage guy because I make you know work for myself, by myself, one at a time. You know, but my numbers are absolutely tiny as far as the boards I actually make, and I still make half the boards are for experiment myself as well. So mm. I'm, I'm still definitely a tinkerer, mm. and I can. I it's so exciting, but the the excitement isn't with making a thruster or a quad. In in my mind, the thruster is everything else mm. uh, that we can make, uh, and and they make good thrusters and quads as well. I mean, mm. they they absolutely do. Mm. The only reason I'm not that interested is I actually think that the professional surfing scene has evolved to, pro, to in, in a symbiotic relationship with the PU thruster quad mm. setup. And the maneuvers that they're looking for are maneuvers that that surfboard does well. Like mm-hmm. they, 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 they need each other. And I, I think that if, if somebody went in there with anything different, they just get they get laughed off, you know. That well, I, I saw something just uh, recently. I'm sure you're familiar with um, John John Florence and um, his board builder, um, and they're talking about a new foam that's uh, like an algae-based foam, and yeah. he's been experimenting with it a bit. And um, I know um, John John's been surfing these these boards with this new like algae-based foam that they're making. So I think that there's. Um, you know, there is a little bit of experiment going on there, and I'm very keen to see the next five to ten years, like, how that's all going to play out. I know Kelly Slade has been messing around with, um, you know, the recycled um, deck pads and that type of thing, and things are going a lot more EPS. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, we're still not seeing a lot of that stuff under the feet of the, of the you know, the top pros. What? But I just wonder, like, how, how long is it going to be? When When's that? Because I can, you know, I can envision that it there's going to be some openings there, you know. Well, it feels as though it's heading in that direction, you know. It, it does feel like that, mm. and it, I'm wrong a lot. Like, like seriously, I've been wrong about just about everything, mm. or, you know. Or, or I, might, I, might be, I might be wrong, 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 wrong. Oh, ten years later, I'm finally right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it takes a little longer. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I, if the pros had a division, you know, a green surfboard division. And people were looking at it. You can get the judges to say, "Okay, we want to see something we've never seen before. Let's open up the doors here, mm-hmm. you know, and get Dane Reynolds and Ozzy Wright and say, "Okay, you guys, show us something that we've never seen." Mm-hmm. That and and we got a hundred thousand dollars here for the you know all mm-hmm. of a sudden you would just explode. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know, as, a, as a semi-conspiracy theorist, and I hope I'm wrong. That they'll just say, well, we can't have that. All of a sudden, the top 44 will, will evaporate and we'll have a new top 44, which would be <laughs> Well, great. this is the thing. I think they, they like to have the best surfers in the world are these people. And even if there is younger people or crazier surfers, those guys are the ones in the limelight. And it's, it's one of those things that fascinates me because you, you imagine if you're a soccer player or if you're, you know, even if you're in the UFC or if there's all these other sports, surfing is like the top, 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 top. What is it? Top forty people. That's yeah. it. That's it. Forty yeah. people in the whole world. There's forty people in the in the surfing division, and we're talking about value. These yeah. things worth billions of dollars, and there's forty people that are employed full time to surf. Yeah, and that just fascinates me. It's like, how can there only be forty of? How are these people the forty best people, the best surfers in the world? Like that. 
and there's only 40 people i'm sure there's other people employed there's referees judges but i think if we if we if we compared it to say the ufc or or any other boxing the amount of people that are employed from from those industries is would be massive it'd be yeah. double or triple you know so I, I yeah i think even that whole um limiting that that amount of people to to, to the industry it's sort of it seems crazy that there should be there should be more in involvement and, and more um, engagement, you know, and, and, a, and a bigger, more diverse um, industry, which I think is happening now. I think I think we're sort of in the in the infancy in the early stages of this of this development and people free surfing, you know, that's completely going off another direction. I remember listening to something the other day and there was maybe two or three free surfers that were like paid free surfers. I think Rob Machado was one and, and there was a couple other free surfers that were sort of getting paid. You know, now it's sort of slowly, slowly, there's there's more and more free surfers out there, guys sort of surfing alternative boards, surfing twinnies and channel bottoms and I think it's really opening up. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited to see where that's going to be and, and what the pros are going to be surfing in 10 years because I, I just can't see that it's going to be the same as it is now, Tom, you know? Yeah, you, you, it's hard to see, and it, and it doesn't really sell all that well. I mean, that the amount of people watching it are, is not spectacular. As uh, as uh, Swellnet, uh, Dave Nettle, Stu Nettle will, will write, is that you know it's a it's a kind of a poor uh, third tier sport as far as viewers go. You know, mm. there may be hardcore viewers, but mm. there's still not that many of them. Mm. Uh, but everyone's got a pair of bodies and a, probably a billabong tee or something. And yeah, yeah, so. So I think that you know you get controversy and, and and opening the doors to something new. Also, you have uh, the the latest thing is the ISP, the International Surfing Professionals, or whatever. And then you've got the WSL. So there's two now competing, and uh, I think that you know whichever major um, one wins uh, will actually open the door. And so I, I love that. The WSL has competition now. All yeah, of a sudden, they're great. like, "Oh my God, we've mm. got to do something here." Mm. We've got Japan over there. They're competing about Japan, and then I think that Kelly Slater is, is a great variable right now because the Kelly Slater Wave Pool. I suspect that if you had impartial judges and you had snowboarders on that wave, they would win. I think they take the surfers out mm. because all of a sudden, the man, whole, you're going to see some some crazy new maneuvers. Yeah, you all like, of a sudden you. Like the the stuff that we that we've grown up with is going to be obsolete, you know, well, in a matter of yeah. moments. Because mm-hmm. though you know, if you once you got um, some really nice reverse rocker boards that mm. could that could pull into that tube mm. and then go deeper and then come out and and, and throw a slash, you yep. know, mm. I think that that the, it's it's actually going to make the the thruster in a way semi obsolete because that way I think you'll find you want to see more of a reversible board almost, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And, and, Similar to skateboarding or snowboarding, where guys are hitting the lip, and um, yeah, they're coming back down, and, and it doesn't matter if if it's the front or the back of the board. No, you know, like you're talking yeah. about reverse yeah. rocker, which I mean, I'm sure everybody sort of can sort of see putting two and two together. But I mean, that's what I envision surfing to be as well. You know, in time to come, um, and it, it'll, I'm sure it'll split off in in a million different directions. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's all exciting stuff. I think you know. It, it is exciting. We live. We live in great times. You know, it uh, those the the era. Like, if you think it's boring now, dude, put yourself back twenty five years ago. It was hideous. It was so boring. <laughs> and the funny thing is that Kelly Slater was the top back then, and he was exciting back then. Mm. I mean, dude, he's not that. He's, he's 
he's great, but he, he's not exciting now. Mm-hmm. But back then, Slater mm-hmm. was exciting, you know. Mm-hmm. But my God, I used to watch him surf Pipeline. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, and he's still unbelievable, but, mm-hmm. but it was new then. Mm-hmm. That was a quarter century ago. I mean, seriously. Yeah. We, it, we, we, it's got, we, we need to just jump through. Surfing, I mean, when I, when I, when I start my talks about surfing, you know, um, you know the kids that come out and come to my, um, you know, my workshops and stuff, you know, you go, this is what surfing was in the 1920s, this is what it was in the 30s, this is what it was like in the 40s, this is what it was like in the 50s, this is like in the 60s. And the 70s I do the 80s. same thing, Tom. I got yeah. I got my little pictures, and you got the different bottoms and that sort of stuff. And yeah. I think that's an awesome part of it, you know. That evolution and teaching part it of as it. well. I mean, yeah. that's one other thing that you, we should probably touch on is you do the surf stay now, so you have students come and stay with you. You're teaching you're teaching guys to make boards as well. Yeah, um, people come, and um, it's it's kind of grueling, but they learn a lot. I mean, they walk away uh, having a, a real deep understanding. And um, they come and we make a surfboard. The goal is that, you know, that to make a surfboard and you're going to walk away with a surfboard. But in a way, I think that the, what they really valuably walk away with is an, in, an intense study of surfboard design. And so when we, you know, when we, we spend a full day just talking about the board we're going to make because we pull out the templates this, we pull out, you know, all the, this long history of surfboards and where the surfboard design come from, and then trying to actually put the surfboard they're making in a very wide historic context. And that's the hard part. And well, that's actually the valuable part. Well, I agree with you too, man. Like, I've, I've done a bit of the board education too, and I, and I love it. Because the reason why I love it, Tom, is the first board I ever made. I mean, I, I moved down to the Gold Coast. I was living on the coast for a few years, and I was surfing shortboards. I was living with some young pros and that type of thing. And it was all about the thruster, you know, and, and I was sort of starting to get a bit fed up and so I made my own board and I took it down to northern New South Wales on a beachy and um, this thing was like a super wide tail, full nose, like a mini Simmons type thing, like yeah. a bat tail with a sort of tri-fin, like a greeno type fin setup. and this thing just took off. It just flew. It was <laughs> yeah. so fast and it was so fun, Tom, and yeah. it changed my life. It changed my perspective on surfing. It changed my joy. It just, it just changed everything. Yeah, and so and then it's like, well, I want to share that stoke. I want to. I'd like to be able to teach people to make their own board. So, people, you know, come to me and they say, ah, oh, yeah, I want a uh, a board with a uh, single concave here, double concave here, and I want to put three fins here, and I, you know, and I go, okay, well, why do you want to do that? Oh, well, that's just all I've ever surfed. And you go, yeah. all right, let's go back and talk about hydrodynamics and the way that the that the the water's going to work under this board and yeah. why things work a certain way and there's a lot of there's a lot of um like you said you, you're sharing that information and somebody walks away with that knowledge yeah and there's there's a, there's a bit of joy in that for sure you know and sharing that stoke yeah mm. it, it look at a surfboard you know so that they walk into a shop and look at a surfboard and they see it just completely different they have more of an understanding yeah yeah that's brilliant yeah, that's awesome, and and that's going well for you. You're getting a few people through. Yeah, yeah, mm. we're uh, we're we're doing well with it. We mm. we really enjoy it. Actually, mm. um, <laughs> we we have what what is it that the champagne problem where we have too many people coming, mm. and um, and I and I can't keep up because uh, after a couple of days with with you know going through it and making a surfboard and so forth, I'm mm. stuffed, mm. and mm. and the person walks away with their, their mind is you know melted. Mm. 
and uh, and we've actually got to kind of figure out a, a somewhat better way. But lots of people come in, and everybody's mm. been very very happy. And yep. oddly enough, you know you know it's kind of funny is mm. that people come in the surf has been you know god awful for the last year, and um, and so we're, we're making a board and we go down to the beach and the surf is flat. And I see, I grab this belly board, mm-hmm. and we jump in, and every single person that's come here so far that stayed for four days has walked away with a couple of belly boards. Oh, wow. Because we go belly boarding, and they ride the belly boards, and they just can't believe it. They're mm. just that stoked. So we come back, and we whip out a couple of belly boards. And, yeah, I would actually like to go have a, a course now where just talk about surfboard design. But seriously, we're going to walk away with a belly board because yep. we can make it in a, in a half a day yep. and then spend the rest of the time. Just have good, having a good time and enjoying it. The chat, mm. you know, riding boards. And, mm. you know, the specialty is I've, mm. I've got a warehouse full of boards here. So mm. we can go down and you can ride, you know, Aleas. You can ride Rostovich's Alea. You can ride this board. You can, you know, all these different, this wide variety of boards and get to feel what it is to look for the board, what, what, what it feels like, what rocker is. Well, I think that's important, mate, because with that whole, um, you know, that, 20, 30 years, so pretty much from the 80s all the way through till, you know, the, the 2000s, it, it was just one board design. So everyone's got it imprinted in their brain that it's just, the, you know, the thruster with the rocker. And so I think, yeah, that it's really important to have guys like yourself and, and, and to be re-educating people on, on how things work and why things work, you yeah. know, and a lot, of, a lot of people that um, surf a certain style you know, they, they don't need this particular board that they've been sold their whole life, you know. Yeah. Um, or what Kelly Slater's surfing. That's the biggest thing I try and, you know, talk to guys about is like, you're not Kelly Slater, so you don't need Kelly Slater's surfboard, you know. We need to make something that's suitable for you if you've got a heavy back foot or if you, you surf yeah. more on your front foot, what sort of waves are you surfing. You know, you surf on the sunny coast, you probably don't need, you know, um something that's a performance shortboard that's designed for surfing you know hawaii or indonesia you know so yeah but i think it's i think it's it's people are starting to learn and and i think these more non-traditional boards are are creating a market you know sure you know um one day i came back to my car after a surf and i'd I'd seen one of my favorite shapers out in the water and i won't say who and he left this little crappy little note in my car you're kind of a, a torn piece of paper and it, 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 it's a treasure of mine. It, it melted my heart because he said, you know, Tom, you changed surfing for us shapers because we can now make boards that fit the customer. Uh, for I had a customer who always wanted thrusters. And then he came to me and I, and I told him, you need a single fin. You need a single fin. You need a single fin. And finally... I made him a single fin, and he's enjoying surfing again. But he said, in a, in a, much, in a much more eloquent way, in shorter um, sentences, you know, you ch- you with the Alea, you change surfing so much mm. that you broadened the horizons to where people could see past a thruster and say, huh, I can might try that over there mm. and try a single fin again because it shattered the concept that there's only one type of surfing mm. and by bringing these roots back and respecting the in the past it just that that little fragile crystalline paradigm mm. of, of the thruster that that you know that that bottom which is, is great it, it's a microcosm that is an incredibly successful 
surfboard design. It's mm. marvelous, mm. but it's limited mm. in a way, mm. and it's just a, it's just a room. But there's so much more to that. Mm. And, and anyways, and that, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. That that board is not for everyone. No. But everyone thinks it's for them because that's you know. But that it's changing. It's shifting. Yeah, the crystalline paradigm. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never heard it be called that before, but I think that's a, that's a um, it's it's a great idea. It, it's it was definitely a paradigm, and I think it's 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 been broken, and people yeah. are opening their mind now to to twin fins, to single fins, to finless boards, to you know, there's a lot of guys um, throughout the world now that are, that are making asymmetrical boards and all of these different kind of crazy and fun designs. But yeah, that work for the individual, a custom board for that person. Yeah. Something that's got a bit of character and is unique and, and, and has its own style for, for, for that person. And um, I think that's what it's about. It's about that value and the, and the culture and, yeah. and surfing being a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, and if you're somebody that goes and buys a white shortboard, then you're, you know, I guess assigning yourself to a certain thing but you're not giving yourself any individuality or that punk attitude you know that that individuality which yeah, which i think is like a, it's to me that's like a, that's a pinnacle of surfing you know is is um is trying to be a bit unique not trying to to fit in with the crowd but to to be a little bit punk you know unique well like in the old days like where you could pull out one of the 60s magazines and it could be black and white you know semi out of focus photo and you know who's surfing immediately mm. Mm. You know, all that's Phil, that, mm. that, that's, you know, that mm. Jerry, mm. that, you know, that mm. the surfers had style, the, their, their mm. own style, their uniqueness. And, mm. and that's, yeah, that, surfing lost that, you know, mm. we, we think, you know, of course, from the other side, they might be saying, oh, no, you can always tell, you know, like this guy or that guy, or whatever, the top 44, each one of their own bottom. Maybe they mm. do, but mm. I, I don't know. But I, I think that, um, yeah, it, it's opened up. And the uniqueness, and going back to identity and, and who you are, you know, you get you have more ingredients to choose who you want to be, and and your own your your style, but you know your own style is really built on the shoulders of everybody else. Yeah, that's you know? right. I mean, it's like no, no musicians or anything else. It's you know Hendrix learned blues from you know from whoever it was before him, and it it's never entirely um, unique or individual. Yeah, it's and, always a development off of something and, and someone, and, and you and you get stoked off of that. You mm. know, you become that person mm. that you know. This is my style. This mm. is my scene. Yeah, I you cut it. you cut your own little path. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I love the the Alex Nost, you know, style. There's so many like Nost heads around. It, you know, I, I you know, some people are critical, and I say, no, nah, man, that's so cool. That's <laughs> so cool. And Alex Nost isn't an, an exceptional person. Like he, the way he serves incredibly well. He's, he's enormously fit. He's He's so flexible. He can tie him in a knot. You know, he's um, he's a good artist. He, he play. I was watching him play the guitar the other night. He's an incredible, you know, musician. He he's no he's no dummy. You know, mm. he comes off as a stoner. But mm. um, I've found one thing I have found is that the great surfers that I have met, like Tom Carroll and um, David Ross, David Mike Stewart, they're very smart people. They're mm. not mm. dumb. They, there's this 1980s Piccoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High sort of. Um, um, stereotype of a surfer, and it's just utterly not true. You know, is the further you go up in the quality of person and the ability to surf, the more um, intellectually stimulating, that the smarter, the more engaged the surfer is. You know, and, and Jerry Lopez, you know, is is, is in exactly that. And it's Mark Richards, you know, very smart, well-spoken, articulate person. Most of the people that that rise to the top of surfing, so 
you know, the, the, the 80s and 90s were all about that, the, the, this ridiculous stereotype that was totally inaccurate. Mm. And I think that was, you know, again, part of the, um, the, the big three owning the, in, owning the industry and actually shooting themselves in the foot in the long term. Mm. Yep. Mate, I think um, we've, we've probably covered um, <laughs> just about everything. Well, probably not everything, but we've, we've, we've run around in a, a, a few. We've talked about the history. We've talked about your personal um, talk about the, the boards that you're making now, and, and um, uh, I guess the only other thing that we can touch on is um, what where can people find you on social media, or if somebody wants to come and do a surf stay with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Okay, actually, Betty, t- turn around. Look at this big possum coming down. Oh wow! <laughs> there's a there's a possum in the shed. Yeah, there's a big possum that oh. that comes out. He I can hear him sleeping right above me, and he kind of scratches around. And the funny thing is. He's not afraid of me at all because he listens to me and he listens to my podcast. You know, he listens to the radio all day long. He's just right above me in the shed. Oh, well, he looks like he's just dropping in to come and see what's happening. Oh, like, see th- what the boys are doing. I am absolutely- Have you got a name for him? I do not. I, I'll have to think of it. But every night he comes down and, and when I'm working here, he'll just stop and sit there and watch me for the longest time because I know he knows me well because he listens to me all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he's um he's not breathing in any bad chemicals or anything here tom That's like you're, you're, you're building in environmentally friendly boards so he's gonna live a long time <laughs> that's right yeah isn't that funny i don't sure he's got a big warm den of sawdust right above me up there in the rafters oh, so awesome. yeah to, to find me it's just um uh tom wegener and, and wegener's w-e-g-e-n-e-r and on um instagram it's tom wegener surfboards and so that's about it. You yeah, know? awesome. I'm going to jump on and check out that um, the surf movie Siesta and Olas. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And a couple of those, um, the the surfing and legendarysurfers.com. That looks awesome as well. So yeah, definitely be looking that up. Great. There, it, it's so exciting, and it's so exciting that you're here, Benny. And uh, and I hope that, uh, that that you know people have enjoyed the interview. Thank you for listening very much, everybody out there. Yep. Thanks, listeners. And um, yeah, check out.